the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And of course, on the phone, it is my, and I'm going to have to choose my words very, very, very carefully because I would hate to have a spell cast upon me, uh, the delightful Alan Niven. Good day, sir. Will I, will Good day, I, Mitch. How are you today? Good. Will, will you be casting a spell on me? I'm just, I'm just curious. Uh, no? Well, I'm totally overloaded at the moment. Oh. Um, since the, uh, the little, little thing that came out this week, I have had so many emails of people saying, um, can you cast a spell for me? I don't want to work anymore. I had, you know, a girl call me up and say, can you cast a, a free Frappuccino every day for me? Um, and I'm working my way through them and I'll get to them as soon as possible. But, you know, it's going to take me a while to get on top of all this. Yeah, I can imagine. So, so for folks that may not understand the reference, Alternative Nation on November 29th ran an article with the glorious title Guns N' Roses legend allegedly had spell cast on Axl Rose by Satan Specialist. And, of course, uh, one former manager, Doug Goldstein, said that another former manager, Alan Niven, had hired a Guns N' Roses, or sorry, a, a Satanic specialist to to cast a spell on Axel and in all of that uh, they went back to a 2016 interview that Alan and I did where Alan said something about Axel playing ACDC running around under the pair of devil horns and blah, blah, blah. and so uh, Alan wrote a nice uh, retort or a nice commentary to, to explain that so um if folks didn't see this on the internet and they didn't read about it, though it was it was not easy to to miss, did you at any time conjure up a spell or hire somebody to conjure up a spell against your former lead singer or the the yes? Let's get a couple of things straight. Um, when when this thing came out, you know, I went. Let's get something straight. Mr. Goldstein, when he was in, um, involved with myself, was actually a tour manager for Guns N' Roses. So I prefer to call him former tour manager. Um, and part of that comes from, obviously, we're not the best of buddies. Um, and I'm a little disappointed that in his tweet, he points out that I was with the band for a certain number of years, which he got wrong. And then he said he was with Axel for a lot longer. And that made me smile a little bit because in his moment of tweeting, he actually had a moment of truth. I represented the band. He represented Axel's interests, which were not necessarily in the band's interest. And, you know, there's that whole palaver of names and so on and so forth. But anyway... Yeah, I did call Jimmy Page, and I said, Jimmy, does your friend Alistair Crowley still hang about? Um, or have you got any Aussie spells left over that I could use? Um, joking aside, the whole thing is so preposterous and ridiculous. And I think you know where I come from. I, I think we've discussed before that I'm uncomfortable with Axel performing on a stage that has a giant pair of 
devil horns on it. Um, I'm uncomfortable that he sings Highway to Hell, um, which I'm not sure has the humor in it that it ought to have. Uh, I'm a great believer that you don't defend the devil. I believe that if you want negativity and you want nastiness in your life, that it's your responsibility to either invite it into your life or expel it from your life. I don't think it gets injected into your life. Um, I think there's a difference between celebrating the devil and aspiring to be a free spirit and challenging the evil of authoritarianism. And if it's just in play, it's stupid. And if it's not in play, then it's evil. And, you know, life is binary. Either you're of the light or of the dark. And I think simply you can say, in the light you can see what and who is beautiful. In the dark, you're blind and you're lost. I agree. To, I agree with that, and uh, I'm going to inject uh, what I'm going to consider a little, a little humor in this. But I've always thought if you want darkness in your life, uh, just join Facebook and follow some political <laughs> posts. Uh, you, you will have plenty of darkness. And if you want light, I would suggest that you go to an album by the Scorpions called Taken by Force, and you listen to a song called Your Light, which is sort of an Uli John Roth composition and. That song is absolutely brilliant, and that talks, in fact, uh, it's a very religious song, and it talks about having light in your life, and that is a... An inc- Do you know that song, by the way, Your Light? You must have heard it. Uh, maybe you don't... Yeah, I've heard it. Yeah. yeah, and I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you. Um, and uh, not that they've had much exposure, but, you know, the, most of the bulk of what I wrote, have written since uh, working with Jack Russell and, and Mark Kendall has been of a very defined point of view. Um, And when you commit something to song, um, and when you commit something that you've thought about and felt about for a long time, that is actually giving a piece of yourself um, to your environment permanently. And, you know, there's a song I wrote, Would, Would You Do It Again? And the theme of the song is, now you know what your life is, would you relive it if you had to relive every second? And the combination of the song is, is the life that you live worth living again? And it's a way of asking the toughest question and maybe giving a slight admonition of, you know, make the most of of your time here and do your best here. I mean, you know, I'm going to go back to ACDC for a minute. It really freaking disturbs me that there seems to be no shame or apology for the fact that the likes of Richard Ramirez found auditory stimulation in their song Night Stalker. I mean, after that happens and you're selling glow-in-the-dark devil horns at your gigs... I'm sorry, that makes you a dumbass Australian little hobgoblin. And you can quote me, and I know that's going to piss a lot of people off, but when it comes down to what really matters, you've got to stand or fall. And I'd rather try and stand for the light. I'll just say this. I'm amazed 
at the take on ACDC because I've personally always considered and, and, and I don't mean this in any negative way, but I've considered them sort of vanilla. They're just sort of a rock band that don't have uh, much message in, in, in their lyrics. And I know folks are going to hate hearing that, but I mean, you know, uh, back in black, I mean, th- th- these are not Henry James compositions here. This is not uh, Shakespeare. It's, it's just, you know, meat and potatoes. So I, so I, I've, I'm, I'm, is it baffled that 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 are you ascribing well, like a, sa- a satanic message to ACDC? Because I, I mean, I've I've just well, don't, I've, I see them as vanilla. Well, it's funny you should say that because somebody did once describe Bon Scott, who who's wicked lad around town persona. I found kind of amusing, endearing for the most case. Did describe him of. Uh, as the uh, Shakespeare of vulgarity, they called him, um, which kind of amused me. And I love down payment blues. I think that is worth the price of admission all the way around. But I think if I found out that I'd written something silly like Night Stalker and it was connected with an event that I lived through um, in California and I can palpably recall the fear that people had, especially women. Um, if I'd written something like that and it had been connected, I would have been mortified and I wouldn't have put a pair of freaking fucking devil horns on my stage, pardon my language. Okay. I don't think you defend a devil and I don't think you mess with it. And I think if something unfortunate like that happens, then you should acknowledge it and say, wow, we're mortified. That was never our intent. We were just being goofy. My God, I don't know what I'm going to do in the future to live this down. Um, no, they just put another pair of devil horns on the, on the stage. And that I find disconcerting. And that's okay. why I'm disconcerted that Axel runs around under them. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Now, l- let me get to our, our, our first guest, uh, I, just to move ah. the, the, the show along here. Um, Ghost is a band out of Sweden. Their new album is Prequel or Prequel, however you want to say it, and the band is on tour all the way, well, through most of December, and then, whoops, they come back on tour next year, opening for the mighty, mighty Metallica, and that is going to be an incredible bill, and uh, we'll talk about it after the interview, uh, because I want to get to to Tobias here, but it is a band that has created an image and a mystique. And in the interview, Tobias talks very openly about, yeah, we probably wouldn't be selling, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, we wouldn't be selling as much and doing as well if we didn't have this image and mystique. So we'll we'll talk about that. But uh, without further ado, it is from the band uh, Ghost, the one, the only, Tobias Forge. We are speaking with uh, the one and only Tobias Forge of the band Ghost. They are currently on tour in North America. The tour will, of course, continue next year through Europe and opening for Metallica. Uh, Tobias, an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Oh, thank you very much. Thank so you very much for having me. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a great pleasure because... Even back in the day when you were in a band called Crash Diet, which is just this incredible band out of Sweden that for some reason never made it in North America, there was just a great vibe and a great energy to, to everything you've done and, and have been doing. Um, so let, let me start Let me start there in, in the sense of, are you 
amazed or surprised at the success you've had with Ghost? Because there was a point there where you went from repugnant and crash diet and working at the telephone company. Were you at a point where you said, okay, the music thing is not going to work for me and I'm just going to, you know, have the family and be in Sweden and, that, and that's my future? What, what was sort of that turnaround point for you? I think that that epiphany came to me in, in uh, late 2009 where I was, you know, a year into parenthood and uh, I had worked at that job for, for a year. And um, just to make things, to be very straight, I, I our, uh, me and my wife being parents was very planned and very enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> I'm not only talking about the making, I'm talking about, we, we, it, it was very planned and our, our kids are very loved and wished for. Uh, but I am definitely not, I was definitely not happy with my working situation and uh, I felt, I had that epiphany towards the end of 2009 that, wow, it's incredible how far away I am from my my dream in terms of uh, aesthetically and 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 what I do want to do with my life on a, on a working basis and uh, I need to get my shit together now and uh, what do I do what do I do with my very little time and since I had ghost uh, you know I had been in the works for a couple of years uh, which was a project that I felt very strongly for, and and um, I, I mean I did from from the inception, but uh, I didn't see it necessarily as like oh it is going to be <laughs> a company, but it, it was definitely uh, like that seemed to be the most enticing thing that I had working for me at the time, so I just decided there and then that. I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket and I'm going to do it wholeheartedly focused to, to an extent that I have never focused on anything before uh, with regards to the bands, obviously. I mean, the, that past year I've been extremely focused on just working and just taking care of the family. But also, you know, from a, from a soul food point of view, it was like I want to take care of my family in a way that I that I feel enthusiastic for uh, about, you know, it, it, as opposed to what I was doing at the time. And uh, Ghost was the only thing that I felt uh, had likes, you know, that had something that I truly felt aesthetically stimulated by because it was both melodic rock and horror and metal and visuals and you know there I saw so many potentials within the the the, the bulk the first bulk of the, the ingredients were so good that it felt intuitive something that I knew I can do that backhandedly like whereas the other things on my table at the time were were way more far-fetched and and, and uh, contrived in a way like it, it felt more forced um, 
so that was my epiphany that in 2009 where I was just like, wow, I've given up. I've given up. It looks like, but I haven't. So I quickly <laughs> snapped out of that and then just super focused. And that many, 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 many steps later, that that was the first step I think to to, to getting here. And it's it's worked out great. Now, when when you started putting the the concept together. Did you always see it as a solo project and you would surround yourself with the people necessary to move the project forward? Or did you see it as this is going to be a band and I need to go find the right players for it? You know, which was it? Was it this is a Tobias solo thing or this is I got to go find a band now? Originally, I, I, I was doing those together with an old friend of mine. Um, who, whom had played with me in both Repugnant and Crash Diet and Submission. Um, and in 2006, when the first songs, when, when the first sort of seed of Ghost sort of was planted, uh, we had just stopped playing together. Uh, the bands that we've been together had somewhat fizzled out, or you know, and, and we just found ourselves in a position where we uh, we were just friends. And and uh, when I presented the ghost idea, it wasn't called Ghost at the time, but we had the song "Stand by Him." Uh, we decided together that well, this might be a fun thing to do together, and. Over 2007 and into 2008, when I was writing a lot of the, the material, um, you know, we, he and I, it was sort of a uh, our intention to, to form a band. Then in 2008, when we did our first recordings together, recording Ghost material and calling it Ghost, uh, and this is, I mean, this depends on how you see it, but essentially on those recordings, he was the engineer, you know, he was engineering those recordings. Well, I came into the room having written 100% of the material, and I played everything and sung on it. So we had already sort of disqualified the idea of having you know, we we didn't have to put a band together in order to to get material to 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 perform. So from a from a writing point of view and from an aesthetic point of view, it was technically a one man project. Um, but our intention was to do a band together, where we would physically play these songs live together. Um, and at the time, just because we were living apart as well, and he was, I don't remember exactly 2008 when he moved, but at some point around that time, he moved to, to Oslo in Norway as well. So we were living apart. I was living in moon shopping and he was living in, in Oslo and, uh, you know, where we both, both originally, you know, we, we, we played in bands and lived in Stockholm originally. Um, 
so it was always also a way to to basically socialize. And I think to to a greater extent for him, I think that he is a little bit more. Um, and I know this now, obviously, because we're still friends. And now he's not in Ghost, and he's not a you know he's not a professional musician. He he was what much more into the idea of having something to do besides. Uh, having a job, and 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 later he had also a family. Uh, he didn't want to do that full time. Um, but at, in 2008, I think our intention was more like we we wanted. Uh, what we were talking about together was more like an excuse to hang out. And at that point, we were looking at people around Sweden that we just genuinely liked to hang out with, that we played with, and, and, you know, people in other bands that we bumped into and that we liked hanging out with. Um, and the idea was to sort of put together a feel-good band that would, you know, occasionally go out and play and, and, uh, and all that. Um, as 2008... You know where where a lot of Opus Eponymous was written and recorded. Not the songs were demoed, and 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 we were looking at some sort of repertoire. Turned into 2009. I had my parental year there, and towards the end of 2009, where I sort of woke up, I think that that's where me and my old friend Gustav, uh, our intentions became a little. Um, as I said, he just wanted an excuse to play in a band and, and whatever, what could be better to, than to do it with a mate and, and some other cool people. Whereas I became a little bit more focused and felt that, wow, those, um, am I now, you know, spent three, four years of writing material and I had almost a full album worth of material and something that I felt strongly about. I think that's when we both sort of started to move apart. And since we didn't have a lineup, um, you know, everything was made a little bit backwards. We made, we recorded Opus Eponymous with a stand-in drummer. And uh, I played everything but the drums, except for uh, four songs. I think he came in and sort of redid the bass. Um, just, you know, because he, he wanted to play it on the album, which was absolutely fine, of course. Right? Here's the, here, here are the bass parts. And then everything moved so quickly. 2010 was such a whirlwind of many things. Obviously, as, as, as documented, it was also a big personal um, year because uh, I was still, obviously, I, I, I was very much a parent still working full-time at my job, um, having two kids, but also family-wise. My brother died. That led to a lot of things, uh, things to do, things to feel, people to cater to, and, 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 and it was just a lot. It's a big mess. And, and you know, on the second half of the year, all of a sudden the album was going to come out, and Quickly, me and Gustav had a big problem because we didn't have a band. But we have this hype 
we have this name, we have this record that is going to come out. And it's going to come out on October 18th, and we have shows. And uh, a lot of decisions being made at that point were were, um, in haste. And obviously, in retrospect, not that good. Um, But, yeah, our intentions to begin with, me and Gustav, was to do something fun together. And then our ideas sort of uh, a so let me ask you this, because before you mentioned that uh, Ghost, of course, has a, a melange or a mix of, uh, you know, uh, pop rock, melodic rock, metal, and, and uh, on the new album prequel, for example, you listen to a song like Dance Macabre, which to me, uh, being a longtime Kiss fan, has almost a sort of an I was made for loving you kind of lightness to it. Um if you were just a regular band with a guy with a white t-shirt and jeans singing these songs, do you think you would have had the same attention or, or ultimately the question being how important was the whole imagery and the whole staging and the whole creating a character? How, how important was that to get the music uh, noticed and out there? Cause you look like at a band like crash diet, which have been around for 18 years, they do great, melodic rock stuff and they're still pretty much just a Swedish band you on the other hand are doing melodic rock for for most of it and you're megastars you're you're an incredible world success <laughs> I just heard the 18 years thing I was like wow is it that long ago yeah um, I think um, I think that the image has been tremendously important for the band. Um, however, I know that, and I, I mean, I sincerely 100% believe that we would have never gotten anywhere if we hadn't had the songs. Uh, one thing that I'm very proud of with regards to the image is that Consciously, we presented the music first. Um, and in 2010, when we did the whole MySpace thing, we presented songs basically accompanied by logo and darkness. So there wasn't anything to look at. That alone is an image, I guess, because that got people thinking. And I, I knew that that was something that I I have always been into, uh, or always, but, you know, ever since I was a kid, ever since, I mean, even when I saw Kiss, or even when I thought Nikki Six was a woman. Um, but I didn't really know, because on the inner sleeve of, of uh, uh, you know, Shot of the Devil, since he, he, since he, she didn't have breasts, I didn't know what to believe. Um, so, I've and, and obviously in, in my during my adolescence and 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 to this day, I've I've always been very, um, you know, I I love bands that sound a certain way, but also have have a lack of 
of uh, accessibility. Um, you know, bands like Profanatica and bands like Necrovore, bands like that, that I hardly know what they look like. You know, because they're so clandestine and, and they, they, they show so little. Back in the pre-internet days, you know, when, when I got so deeply in love with black and death metal, there was hardly anything to see. You didn't know what they looked like. You know, Eronimus was just a black and white picture. You, you'd seen five pictures of him. Tops. One being on the back of Death Crush, where you don't see him even. And it's like that, and those aesthetics still have a strong impact on me. And that, that was something that I wanted to, to have with Ghost. That first, you only hear the music. I want the music to be, come first. And then when you see a picture, you don't really get wiser. You get tickled, but you don't. You don't know more. Uh, and, um, shit, I forgot where I was going. Well, let but me, let yeah, me. Absolutely. I've had, I've had a, had a, I have had a, a deep, a, a very deep impact and obviously a very great importance. Yeah. So, the most time that I've had a fantastic importance for the band. Yeah. I, I'm just, Especially because all these all these hundreds of shows that we've made, not making any money off of playing whatsoever. The only thing that sustained this band being able to pay everyone is because of the T shirts. So yeah. hadn't it been for the logo type and the aesthetics, we wouldn't have the brand to sell on t-shirts and if, if we weren't able to do the t-shirts we would never have been able to tour never yeah no so i agree with the that image has definitely had a very very big significance for the band and, and just uh, i just want to clarify i wasn't being dismissive of the songs so the songs are great i was just trying to tell folks especially younger bands that it's it's about great songs but it's also about a whole lot of other stuff and that's important to, to remember. And, oh, yeah. I know, and I see we're running out of time, but um, just real quick, uh, and, and, and you did mention Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue. Um, without argument, their best album ever. Uh, but you will be touring in the summer, because we have like about three minutes left. So uh, you're going to be touring in the summer with Metallica in the summer of 2019, obviously. Um, talk to me about that just real quick, because you, you did a couple of shows with Guns N' Roses this year. How exciting is it for you on a fan basis to be on a stage with Metallica, but also on a business ba basis and, and positioning yourself to be part of the package of next summer? I mean, from if, if you would speak to the younger part of myself, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. I mean, Metallica is one of my absolute favorite bands of all time. And uh, as a you know, and as an aspiring musician, and as a kid who wanted to become nothing but a touring musician, they, together with a few other bands, but but they definitely were one crucial influence, just because they also provided with a lot of insight as to what it is, what it could be like being a touring musician. 
um, uh, because they, you know, they, 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 uh, more specifically because they, they, they made that film or those two films a year and a half in the last of Metallica that I, you know, I got back for Christmas when I was 11 and, uh, the first part is about making the black album. The second film is about touring the black album. And for me, those two films have definitely set a precedent like, that is how you record an album, and that is how you tour it. And obviously, we're talking about the Black Album, one of the biggest and best and most selling rock metal albums of all times. And the Black Album tour, or with all its names, uh, that was 314 shows or whatever it was. It was it was a lot of a lot of concerts, and that is definitely influenced me in terms of 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 um work ethic and uh, you, you know learning that you know you're not big in America unless you play more shows than a handful of shows in, in every state <laughs> and you're out for two years touring and uh you know you have to do the work and uh, yeah, the, they've they've been so instrumental. Not, I mean, I'm not even not even mentioning obviously the the, the impact that the music had on me and 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 and, and all the aesthetic soul food they, they gave me. But they they were very inspiring when it comes to uh, the, for lack of a more magical word, the business side of things. Um, and then. Fast forward to Ghost. I had the privilege of, of, of being in a band that was asked to play with them, and then I had the privilege of getting getting to know them a little, and and uh, you know working alongside in a, in a way. And we have a few people together that we work with. You know, we uh, <laughs> boring stuff, but I have the same accountant as Kirk, and. Uh, and, you know, so, and, which is also learning experience. I mean, there's so, so many things that you can learn that, you know, I don't want to, you know, expose or uh, bore people with in, in, in a show like yours, but there, there are many, many aspects and many factors of being in a professional band that, 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 that you have to learn about and that you have to take decisions uh, regarding and, and uh, I've, I've I've learned a lot from those guys, and I keep learning, and I'm very much looking forward to the boot camp that's going to be next summer. I I I, I cannot imagine a bigger um, honor than to uh, go through my first uh, and what do you know, maybe only real stadium tour, twenty five shows in over the course of a summer with my fucking idols and my mentors it's fantastic what, oh, a, what a privilege what yeah. a what a fantastic thing for that 11 year old kid you know oh it, it'll be That's, spectacular it, it's yeah. going to be fa- fantastic and and i think well, since we, since we've run out of time you did say that you have to do the work, and I think that's the message that we need to underline: is is to to be Ghost, to be in this, to be Metallica. It's not all about 
that other stuff, you have to do the work. And uh, Tobias, an absolute, absolute pleasure. Uh, I, hopefully I'll get out to, uh, to see you in, in Montreal. Uh, very much looking forward to that. And just absolutely thank you. Just great chat today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Have a nice day. Thank you now. Cheers. Bye-bye. Here. Yeah, cheers. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to Tobias of the band Ghost. And uh, we've had Ghost. We've had uh, Satan. We've had, and of course, uh, Ghost has their own sort of, how would you qualify their their lyrical content, if you want, or their imagery? Well, I remember when they first came out and there were a lot of kids around the town who were, you know, impressed by them. Um, and, you know, being of the kind of critical nature that I am, I kind of looked at it and went, well, they sound like heavy ambrosia to me, apart from the fact they're, you know, putting this uh, um, satanic evil gloss over it. And I'll, co- I'll go back to the one statement, don't defend the devil. They have, um, they have on their new album a song called "Dance Macabre," and, and we, you heard us talk about it during the interview. It sounds to me somewhere between like "I Was Made for Loving You" meets the greatest hits of ABBA, and you're looking at this band with this all this imagery and the upside down crosses and stuff, and you go, "But they're just doing ABBA with sort of maybe a little down to me." It's it's, it's interesting. It, it, it's 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 fun. Yeah, I'm, I, I, Am, am I that off and saying it sounds like heavy ambrosia? No. Um, you know, and that, that, that's what struck me in the first place. Um, but it, it, to me, it's, it, there's enough bad things going on in this world that it's difficult for me to accept even being playful about this shit. Okay. I think you have to make a choice. Life is binary. You're either in the light and the dark, you're on the good you're one of the good guys or you're one of the bad guys. Take your choice and there will be consequences because let me tell you, karma is a bitch. Yeah, that that I agree with. And and I'll say this too j- just on the musical side from for Ghost they did create something unique with this imagery because had they shown up with jeans and a white T-shirt and done these songs, honestly, I think they would have been picked up by Frontiers Record. They would have they would have probably never made it to North America. They would have been one of these great rock and roll Swedish bands that does really great in Europe. And it just goes to show, especially for bands that are trying to make it, there is so much more to it, especially in this day and age, than good songs or good riffs or good this. It, it really is this entire package hey, of everything. Let's go back to the Rolling Stones. Yeah. You know, and way back when I was a nipper, you know, I'm probably one of the few people who are old enough to remember Jagger and Co. back in those days. Um, but, you know, playing at being the bad boy has always had its place in rock and roll. But as far as playing the bad boy I'd, I'd I'd put my money on yeah be anti-authoritarian question authority question the people who tell you what you should do in life and that's adequate sufficient and intelligent bad boy when you start messing around with upside down crosses and that imagery you're going into a place where you may not come out yeah yeah just 
just just ask Alistair Crowley, who disappeared. No one knows very when. I think they came for him. Well, he got uh, immortalized in a uh, Ozzy Osbourne song. But uh, <laughs> you know, let me let me move on from that to something positive. Uh, the story of Johnny Hawking. Yeah, Johnny Hawking's. Of course, from the band Nothing More, their new album, or their latest album, I should say, because it came out in 2017, is called The Stories We Tell Ourselves. And Johnny is a guy that I first met at Heavy Montreal back, um, hmm, maybe 2013, 2014, I'm trying to, but a while back, and and I was in the press tent, and they said, hey, blah, blah, blah. The, the lady came over, the, the publicist or the record company rep, and said, hey, we've got this sort of new band. Uh, even though they've been around for 15 years, they, they really haven't made it to the, you know, the more general public until the last sort of five years. And they said, do you want to interview this guy? They're really cool. And I was like, eh, you know, and I did. And he was so exceptionally nice and well-spoken, and just everything you'd want. He, there was no attitude. He was polite. He was respectful. He was uh, a great orator, had some great stories to tell, had a great way to, to, to handle himself in, in interviews. Not a rookie at all. Uh, and yet he was a rookie in a sense. And so uh, I got Johnny on on the phone to talk about their latest album and their touring. And of course, they're going to be touring into 2019 as well. And during the story or during the interview, we talk about sort of what motivates him and what his songs are about and, and all that sort of, you know, rigmarole. And he, he started talking about his mom who uh, passed away and stuff. And the interview got very emotional and very um, deep. And, and so, and so, real. I mean, yeah, it got really real. So I, I, I want you to check this out and, and check out the interview. Some of you that listen to me, yes, I know you're Kiss fans and you're Cheap Trick fans and Bon Jovi fans and whatever, and, and nothing more is, is not on your radar, but it really should be because this is a story of, of these, these guys that just, they have heart and they've, they've just put their entire positive energy and heart into performances that are out of this world. I mean, they have this, I don't even know what you want to call it. It's like a keyboard, something that sort of uh, goes up or flies up in the sky. You you have to see it to understand it. It's sort of not describable just with words. And they, they just, they leave everything on the stage every night and they leave everything on the albums every night. And when they do interviews and now that they had success and now that they're out touring and now that they're getting more and more known, they're still not a-holes. They're still very kind, very nice, very positive, very courteous, very appreciative. You know, at some point they can say, hey, listen, we're at this thing. We don't need to talk to – they will talk to, you know, any website, any webzine, and and they will make it as important as talking to Westwood One or as talking to Eddie Trunk or as talk- – you know, sometimes you got to root for the good guys and nothing more in one of those bands that are good guys. And if you're not fans right now, you probably should be because it's it's nice to root for an underdog and for a good guy and for somebody who just leaves it there. And so uh, do check out the stories we tell ourselves and whatever they release in the future and whatever they released in the past. And uh, hey, you yeah. know, from my from my perspective, Mitch, the best of rock and roll has always been a positive energy flow. You know, it's the people who make you feel good about yourself. 
the people who make you feel good to be alive, uh, the people who make you feel good about what's happening in that very moment. I mean, you know, those are the people who inspired me. I love those people. I love the John Lennons of the world. I love the Bob Marleys, you know. And you love you love the Johnny Hawkins of this world. And I know I know. Listen, let's be honest. You're not overly familiar with Nothing More. I know you've heard a few tunes, mm -hmm. but you should definitely go check them out because it is one of those new bands that has that energy and that has that vibe. And I I know for a fact, knowing you, that you would appreciate what they do, and uh, they do it well, and they do it at a high level, and they do it from the right place and the right perspective. So. Johnny Hawkins from Nothing More, new album or the latest album is The Story We Tell Ourselves. And hold on a second. Uh, before we go get some eggnog for, for the weekend, um, I believe that you have some information from the weird, wonderful, wacky world of Guns N' Roses where you can usually trust nothing that's ever said. Um, unless it's completely wacky, uh, you have an update about what's being recorded and not being recorded, don't you? I do, I do. So uh, just to uh, contextualize it for folks, on my uh, Twitter, I had put that there was an unsubstantiated report that Guns N' Roses had been recording Children of the Revolution for a Mark Bolin T-Rex tribute album. And of course, as it is with rumors, some are true, some are false. But here is the note I got, the email I got from Hal Wilner. He is the producer in charge of the actual project. And so I'm going to read you the note exactly as is, and then we can take a few minutes just quickly to discuss it before we, we get over to nothing more and uh, Johnny Hawkins. But uh, it says here, Hi, Mitch. Just wanted to clear up a rumor you wrote about uh, Ray Guns N' Roses recording Children of the Revolution for BMG and my Bolin project. And of course, he does state correctly that it says rumor. And he says emphatically, they are not on the record. In fact, Children of the Revolution is done by Kesha with a live orchestra that features Wayne Kramer of MC5 and LA's Jack Shit Band that has members of Elvis C, which I'm assuming is Elvis Costello, and Jackson B's band. There is a rumor that Axl Rose recorded that song, but for a different Bolin project without Guns N' Roses. But again, it is not ours. So uh, just step aside from the letter for a second. We're, we're in this gray area. So there apparently is still this rumor on the table that Axl and company or Axl has done Children of the Revolution for a project, but not this project. So we're, we're at 50-50 right now. So let me continue with the letter. So back to what Hal was saying. Our project is done and BMG is putting it out in March or April. It is called Angel-Headed Hipster, Another Look at Mark Bolin. The title comes from Allen Ginsberg Howell poem. Some of the featured artists are Mark Allman, Nick Cave, Perry Farrell, Foo Fighters, Emily Haynes, Joan Jett, Father John Misty, Todd Rundgren, Peaches, Bjorns, Nina, and more. 
27 tracks over two CDs, vinyl, and all the other ways. So just wanted to give you the real info. Much love, Hal Wilner. Oh, and he adds, and with U2, uh, and sorry, let me let me rephrase that. Oh, and U2 with Elton John 2, uh, T-O-O. So that is the note. So we're, we, how can I put it, Alan? We haven't taken a step back from the unsubstantiated reports, but we also haven't taken a step forward. Um, so the project that Variety wrote about in October, about this Mark Boland thing with a film and all, not Axel, not Guns N' Roses, absolutely 100% cleared up. But within the letter, it says that they have heard that Axel has recorded the song, but for a different Boland project. So what what do you make of this? You know, one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, two steps back? We we haven't really moved I, the, 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 I, the, the yard markers. I, I, I think uh, as much as I'll acknowledge that GNR moved a stunning number of steps in the last two years. I would still say if I was a bit of an old cynic and maybe knew one of the two of the personalities involved, that for me, I was a little surprised to know that they were contributing to a project like that, especially since I think Axel's going to have a hard enough time getting around to heating up Chinese leftovers. Yeah, so there you go. So the so who knows? We we haven't really uh, accomplished anything. The uh, tweet, I stand by the tweet. It was clear that it was an unsubstantiated rumor. And then it wrote at the end, rumor, rumor, rumor. Uh, and the email from the producer of the actual uh, T-Rex, Mark Boland project, says it's not his project. But again, puts into question the rumor as being rumor and still out there so uh, in the ether it is still out there but uh, without further ado who is still out there it is johnny hawkins lead vocalist for nothing more and uh, let me get right over to johnny here is johnny hawkins we are speaking with johnny hawkins of the band nothing more of course the latest album is the story we tell ourselves Johnny, an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. The last time was at Heavy Montreal back in 2014 or so, about four years ago. And so here we are. Welcome. It's good to talk with you again, man. Yeah, so so let's talk about the progression of the band from that time. And and, and even before, uh, you've, you were formed back in sort of the early 2000s, 2003. We're, we're at our sort of 15th anniversary um, what have been some of the struggles and some of the great rewards of putting together a new band in this sort of era of, you know, downloads and, and, and stuff like that? What have been sort of the, the toughest challenges for you? It's a great question. Um, yeah, so we got together as a band pretty young. Um, like you said, 2003, I was in uh, early high school, um, maybe even late middle school is when I met Mark. And, um, you know, we had high hopes, big dreams, and stars in our eyes when I graduated high school, we were going to start touring. Um, my bass player convinced me to drop out of college, which was kind of the first hurdle or challenge, if you will, was convincing my family that not going to college was a good idea. And uh, um, especially when I, my, my grandmother at the time had 
put aside some money for years for me to go to college. And I found a loophole in the system and leveraged that money to buy studio gear so we could make a record. Um, so the first challenge was, you know, getting really clear in our own hearts and minds that this is what we wanted to do. And, um, you know, in the face of a lot of failure, I mean, every band that we had known at the time, um, even if they got signed, which was the first, you know, major success, uh, that every band is looking for is getting that financial support and backing. Um, cause it, it kind of means that you're going to get a legitimate shot and, all the bands we'd known had failed or, you know, record deals had fallen through or they'd been screwed over by the labels. And especially when we got onto the scene, it was the kind of like a graveyard of, uh, bands because, uh, the digital age, uh, I should say the digital revolution in the music industry had really occurred and there wasn't any hope in sight at the time. Everybody just was, saying that the sky was falling and the record industry was collapsing because you know everything had been built on in the past was changing and no one could quite see uh, with any certainty how the artists were going to get compensated and 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 make you know legitimate livings doing this and so that added a lot more doubt to an already um skeptical situation <laughs> with very little chance of success but we knew in our hearts that we were artists and to do anything else would be um, basically signing ourselves up for suicide in the future. I, I could just picture myself, you know, hating my life and having an office job or something like that. And um, maybe being more comfortable temporarily, but I, I think I'd be selling my soul. Um, and so that was our biggest challenge was finding what we truly believe deep down in our hearts, uh, and that oftentimes is at complete odds with everyone around you um, and the environment around you. And it's not until years later that you stay with it and force yourself to walk through the fire um, and scrape by, you know, not knowing how you're going to pay bills or rent um, for years that you finally get there. And then everyone, you know, finally agrees with you and celebrates your success. But at, at the beginning stage, um, the only person on your side is you. And so I think that was the biggest challenge. How do you maintain the focus though? Because in, in the face of, you know, either constant rejection or, and I don't want to call it failure, but maybe not achieving immediate success and having that financial security, there's gotta be times where you sat there and went, yeah, okay, we're done. I, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I need, you know, in fact, were there moments where you just sort of sat back and just went, this is too hard, man. I, I can't go on. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, there was a lot of, I mean, I still, surprisingly enough, um, I still get those moments today because it's so much easier now than it's ever been because we have success and we're not, you know, we're, we're financially more secure and, um, we have great shows and so it's a lot easier, but there's still a lot of moments where we're away from home, um, for long periods of time and takes a toll on your personal relationships. And, um, we get these low moments even now, but, but then, um, 
sometimes I, th- I think a, a big part was, you know, knowing that that is an inevitable point that you're going to reach. And when you go into it, knowing that, um, your expectations are kind of calibrated properly so that when you do reach those points, when you really just want to throw in the towel, um, you kind of let yourself quit momentarily, like quit for a day, quit for a week, you know, just, just throw in the towel it for a moment, but deep down in your heart, you know, that you're not really giving up. You just need to let yourself let go for a second. Um, and so giving yourself permission to do that is, is a very powerful tool on the journey. Um, and then I think another part of it though, is, um, you know, the, we, we set out with a philosophy that the only failure is quitting. Um, you know, if, if we make a record and it's not successful, which we did about four or five times, um, which spanned the, you know, about eight to 10 years, um, that was not actual failure. That was testing. That was learning. Um, actual failure was, uh, not learning and not moving forward by quitting and accepting one of those failures as the ultimate failure. So that was kind of our foundation philosophically. And when, and and so I think it all, it all comes down to mindset. And when you're setting out to do something, really adjusting your mindset, getting it prepared. Even when you walk on the stage every night, um, there's, there's an intense mental process in which many times I have to reconfront some of my deepest fears I had as a child, which was um, speaking in front of people. Uh, I always would lose sleep at night if I knew I had to speak in front of the class the next day. Um, I, I would also very afraid to, to, talk to girls. Um, it was just a lot of insecurities, a lot of fears. And so to get on a stage in front of all these people and, uh, you know, pour my heart out or be vulnerable, um, sometimes it's an intense mental challenge. And so, uh, I have to prime myself. I have to, you know, practice, uh, mental, uh, focus and meditation and inspiration. Um, and, and I'll say the last thing I'll say on all this, I'm sorry if I'm getting a little long winded here, but, um, one of the biggest things was, um, visualization and imagination. You know, when we're kids, we imagine ourselves as superheroes in the lawn and we're, you know, shooting all these bad guys or fighting the good fight. But as we get older, we kind of lose that imagination and, and we think it's silly because it's not real, but, it, it actually kind of is real. Like when you do that process, when I, before I go on stage, I go back into that mindset, like a child where like, I'm a superhero again. I'm, um, this beast of a person, you know, bigger than I feel that I am. And I, I stick my chest out and I start breathing heavy and I pound my chest like an ape and, and kind of tap that animal side of me. And it, it becomes real even though the imagination part isn't. And uh, I think that's a big key to all of it. Yeah. And you know what, that, that's actually very fascinating. And, and I'm going to keep, keep you going on that for a second. Cause you know, listen, a lot of the fans that go to, to a nothing more show are of the younger generation. I'm a little older, but there are, you know, you've got a lot of 15 to 18 to 24 year olds that show up. And a lot of them do have those insecurities and do have those moments of self doubt 
as you had described having yourself, what do you suggest or what message can you have for a fan and say, listen, you, you get, you know, I don't know, and I don't want to say get over it because that sounds very, you know, almost disrespectful to say, but how do you sort of say, hey, listen, have faith in yourself, get to that next level. What message sort of did, did you have to go through to get to that point where you could get and not be afraid of being in front of the class anymore? Um, you know, I think I, I don't, I don't know if I ever would have faced my fear, um, head on unless there was something incredibly necessary or meaningful, um, an an incredibly strong why. Um, I've heard a lot of people who, you know, I listen to all these successful people, uh, especially when we started, I would just flood my brain with, you know, uh, speeches or advice from people from all walks of life, you know, Steve jobs, for example, you know, somebody who set out and built this huge company and done things differently. And one of the biggest things I've heard from all of them was find your why, because if you have a really strong why, um, the reason you're doing something that's deeply meaningful, um, you can almost overcome anything. And at the time I started singing, uh, my mom had, uh, got diagnosed with uh, a very rare and highly deadly form of cancer. And so I knew it was basically I had like a year left with her. And at that time, I think that was such a, a deep, probably the deepest thing in my life was my connection to my mother. Just, I think in, instinctively we're all more connected to our mothers than anyone else since we come out of them uh, and, and they raise us most of the time. Um, and so that was, it became a personal thing that I was like, I saw what she endured with cancer and I was like, I am not going to go to my grave wondering what I could have been. And I'm going to, I'm going to face this fear head on and, uh, be, you know, fulfill my full potential because my mom gave me everything she had, even in her cancer, she fought for her kids when we were in rough spots. Um, so that was my why that, that, um, yeah. Sorry. No, <laughs> yeah, no, no. But a little emotional thinking, thinking about it. It's funny. No, but uh, no, and and by the way, uh, my condolences there for 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 to, for to you and your family for your the loss of your mother. But it is it is powerful, and that's what music should be. Music should be powerful, and and it's nice. I think in in this case, when an interview was not just tell me about the new album, tell me about the new this, because you know that that at some point gets you know, old and gets, gets facetious. So, right. I mean, it's, it's very nice to, old. <laughs> it does. And it's nice to have a, a, a different kind of conversation. Um, so let me, um, and, and I, and I don't want to move di- away from your mother disrespectfully, but I'm going to just, no, um, no. you know, you look at bands like Metallica, like the Rolling Stones, like U2, these these stadium bands, these bands that are at a, at, a, at another level that, in many cases, incomprehensible, because you just go, how do I go from playing my living room to playing Wembley? You've been at it for 15 years. You are on tour. You are 
you know, you're, you're from from the dates I'm looking at, you're going all the way till April for now, and there might be more dates later. I'm assuming. Um, how does a band like Nothing More get to that ne- next level? And does that next level in this marketplace even exist anymore? Can can a new band like Nothing More be a stadium act in five years from now or two years from now? Is is that even an attainable goal? And and if it is, what do you got to do to get there? That's a great question. Um, I, I'm kind of answering that question myself recently. Um, cause the, the very, uh, maybe naive, but, uh, inspired part of myself and who I am, um, likes to shoot for the stars and aim as high as possible and, and not really consider the reality or the pragmatic side or the environment of the market, you know, you know, and I like to believe that it's possible. Um, but the more practical side of me asks that question a lot because it is a very different landscape nowadays than it ever was in the past. Um, bands aren't launched to that level like they used to be. Um, and there's a lot more out there. Things seem to be a bit more fragmented and a bit more, niche and listener specific unless you're in like the pop world where you know that's all pop's always been pop it's always been you know mcdonald's marketed to the masses and you know aimed at the lowest common denominator in our instincts so i think that's always gonna be that but as far as a rock band um it's a tough question um that's what we're aiming for and i I do believe that we're going to accomplish that to a degree but it is a tricky question nowadays. I guess I'll just say that. <laughs> it is a tricky question. So, so okay, you are on tour, and, and the tour, as the dates I'm looking in front of me, they stretch all the way till April 2019 or end of March 2019. How important was the live show in getting to where you are today, and how important is it in moving forward? Because 15 years, you said it yourself, the first few albums – you know, shelter, save you, save me, uh, didn't do as as good as one would think, or maybe one would hope, but yet did good enough that you're still here. So the, it's not negative. But how important is the live show and getting out there and and being at a festival like Heavy Montreal four years ago and being uh, at a club coming up? That you know, talk to me about the importance of the live performance and you know that's is that where you build the fan base these days. Yeah, I would I would say that for us that's been the biggest um steady growth uh catalyst, you know. I think that we'll have these bursts of growth um at these very important times, you know, whether it's dropping a single that goes number 1 or in the top 5 at radio in the in the states and or you know, we got like a a very fortunate movie uh, pairing when Planet of the Apes came out, they used Go to War. Things like that will cause these little bursts uh, of exposure and growth, but even that sometimes isn't as as strong and long-lasting of growth as as the live area. Because I think at a live show, especially with what we do and the genre that we're in and, and art and music that we put forward. Um, it, it, 
it really connects at a deeper level and you don't get a lot of that in, in kind of a sound bite or a passing moment. So to be at the live show, I think you really connect with the heart of the band and, and those are the moments where people become lifelong fans. And so, uh, yeah, I would say, I'd say that's the bulk of it nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and again, looking back to, to, in my own experience, I think live shows had a great impact. I, I, you know, you, when you go see a band like kiss, especially back in the day, the makeup, the fire, you go, Oh, that didn't come with the vinyl. That's all right. That's something different. Um, so, all right, let, let's quickly talk about the uh, the last album, the stories we tell ourselves. Uh, where are we in terms of putting together the next new album and moving forward? And um, when can fans sort of start seeing that or expect that? Um, so I, I lost this for a quick second, but did you say the next album? Yeah, I'm just, the stories uh, that we tell ourselves came out, of course, in September of 2017. Are, are, do we stay on the album cycle for a bit more or are we starting to work on the next one? And when do we see uh, more, nothing more uh, music? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we're looking to f- do one more uh, headlining tour in uh, North America and one more headlining tour in Europe. That way we can play a lot of the songs that we haven't played yet off the stories we tell ourselves. Um, you know, we've been playing about half the record and the other part of our set's been a variety of songs off the other two records. Um, so we're going to wrap it up probably in May and then, uh, probably over the next year after that, we'll be, um, kind of restructuring, uh, getting some time at home and compiling all the song ideas we've been working on, uh, on the road. So I, I don't know where that'll put us with, when the next record will come out, but that's when we'll start working on it is probably uh, next summer. So, uh, so let me just ask, cause I know you just said you're going to work on it next summer, but is the process one that is ongoing where you're at the back of the bus with a pro tools rig or whatever recording thing and you get <laughs> ideas down or is it, Oh no, I need to lock myself in a room for three weeks and whatever comes out. I mean, what is the, your process or the band's process for, for creating new music? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is ongoing. Um, I'd say the first few months after we release a record, we really don't do any writing, um, cause we're pretty burnt out on it and we're just in execution mode. We're really focused on the tour and the marketing and, uh, getting press out there telling everybody about the new record. So after a few months or so, uh, a touring, we start getting uh, the itch again and we start compiling song ideas. It, it's mainly done individually, uh, meaning like I'll, I'll email myself tons of ideas as, as the inspiration comes throughout the tour and travel. And same thing with Mark, my guitar player. He'll record a lot of ideas just on his phone or something simple. Um, and then when we start working on the record, it's really a process of getting back into the jam room with all of us and creating new ideas as well as compiling all those ideas that we had, um, you know, documented over the course of the year or two that we were touring. You were touring. And, uh, I'll end on this today. The, uh, Grammy award nominations, uh, for, of course, go to war and the best rock album. Um, 
best rock performance, best rock song too. What does that mean to a band like you? And also coming from where you were, you know, 15 years ago to having this nod from the profession or from, from, from the peers, uh, important or just, you know, a little sort of side dressing, but it's not really the greatest motivator. You know, talk to me about the the Grammy nominations and what it means to you personally and both professionally. Yeah. Um, I think the, the biggest element of it that was meaningful to us was the validation it gave to our family and friends, you know, cause we've been doing this for such a long time and a big part of trying to accomplish anything is having support and, and people believing in you or helping you when you get in a rough spot. And so families and friends have supported us along the way. And, and I think that it, it was like a huge victory for them because it's such a, you know, internationally recognized accolade. And that's really what made us feel so good about it was, was seeing their faces light up. Um, but as far as us individually, you know, uh, there's so many times when people get Grammys that I just, I don't agree with what won or what even got nominated <laughs> as far as the, the artist and critic in me. So I don't, I don't really view it uh, as anything in of itself, but um, just getting nominated at all and recognized was, is a huge thing for us and something that we were very happy and, and, you know, honored to, to accept, but yeah, hopefully yeah. I, I will say this though about the Grammys yeah. too, is that I've been very critical of what the, the rock genre has looked like, uh, rock and metal. It's just seemed very disconnected from what's actually been going on in the genre and in the scene. But I think that they're taking steps to fix that and become more relevant, more connected. Um, and so I, I do uh, applaud the Grammys for hiring younger people with that goal specifically in mind and addressing their voting system and all that. So I, I think that's good. Yeah. Now, now we just need to convince the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to do the same with their system. But um, Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Johnny, an, an absolute great pleasure. And again, uh, the first time we did something at Heavy Montreal, it was just absolutely fascinating. You were incredibly polite and, 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 and uh, just a great interview. And today, uh, more of the same. And so thank you for that and uh, looking forward to seeing you live. Hey, it was a pleasure talking with you and uh, looking forward to it. Cheers. Have a good one. <laughs> All right. Cheers, man. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.